Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles' leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Today's guest is Sarah Lorenzen, professor and former chair of the architecture department at Cal Poly Pomona, a role for which she was awarded the AIA LA Educator of the Year Award in 2015. She is also a licensed architect and partner at TOLO, which was formerly Peter Tolkien Architecture, and resident director at the Neutra VDL House. Recently, she was also elected to the board of directors at AIA LA. I personally have known Sarah as her student and also as an adjunct faculty teaching at Cal Poly Pomona. I've always admired her straightforward attitude and clarity in communication and always wondered how she's able to take on so many things and do them so well. I also admire her as a feminist and advocate in our industry, which she discusses during the show. On that note, I just want to remind listeners of the upcoming Women's March on January 20th. The AWA Plus D's Advocacy Committee is organizing a group to march together and will be meeting in the lobby of the Sheraton Grand Los Angeles at 8.15. I'm going to be there, and I hope you will be too. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode. So I got into architecture, first studying art, so I have an undergraduate in fine arts, and uh, I had a professor named Harris Dimitropoulos, who was an architect. So he practiced architecture, but he practiced kind of art-based architecture. And he was really interesting. You know, he encouraged me to apply to architecture school. And given that I was coming out with a degree in fine arts, and I wasn't entirely sure that that's really what I wanted to do. So it seemed like a good option. But I think like most people, you just sort of fall into something. You try a bunch of different things. At least those of us who have an MARC 1 instead of a Bachelor of Architecture. And in terms of teaching, after I graduated from Georgia Tech, one of my professors there, Sabir Khan, invited me back to teach first year. I think a lot of people get their start that way. I was practicing at a firm, and the office let me take three days a week off in the afternoons to teach the first year. So it was great. I realized that I really loved it. And did you know at that point after teaching there that you wanted to keep teaching or? I thought about it. I mean, I also, I come from a family of academics, so it was something that was, you know, everybody, except for my mother, who's a businesswoman, my dad, my stepmother, my stepfather, my grandparents are all academics. (laughs) So it was a sort of a natural thing to gravitate towards. But after I taught at Georgia Tech, then I actually still practiced for another four years before I went, got into teaching full-time. Wow. So how did you end up in L.A. at Cal Poly then? Well, after about seven years of practicing and already having a Master of Architecture, I decided that, I don't know, if it was boredom or just, I had been doing a lot of large buildings, research in science facilities for universities and for different uh, private institutions. And And I had been interested in urban design before that. And these kinds of really large projects were similar in a way to urban design projects. So then after practicing for a while, I sort of stumbled across uh, the work of Michael Speaks, who who writes a lot about theory and urban issues. And he had this program at SciArc 
that he'd started, uh, which was called Metropolitan Research and Design. And it was a, akin to what was happening at the Berlag, which I was also interested in maybe attending, going and getting a PhD. It seemed more convenient to go to L.A. and work with Michael Speaks. So I came to L.A. and interviewed with him and really liked him. And I figured it was one year and it would give me a break from practice. And it was all on, for me, there was no real reason to do it. I already had, was practicing. I was already licensed. It was a, a kind of <laughs> a funny, it was a bit like a one-year sabbatical. So I did it. You know, I tried not to be too vocal about the fact that I already had a lot of experience and I had already <laughs> I also already had teaching experience and just took it as an opportunity to see what was happening mm-hmm. at that time in architecture schools and how different teaching was at that time. I mean this was so I I went to grad school in the early nineties, early to mid nineties, and that was kind of the end of postmodernism. And then, you know, the sort of digital design took took over in a lot of academic settings. And so it was interesting to go to CyArk, which was the place where digital design had really taken hold. And the program that Michael Speaks had was a combination of this kind of digital practice and urban research sort of based on OMA. And he was trying to merge these two very different sides of what was going on in architecture at that time. I'm not sure that they ever really merged, but it was uh-huh. an interesting premise to take this two extreme sides mm-hmm. and create, you know, some kind of a conversation. So it was fun. It was super fun to do that. It was like a break from real life <laughs> for a year and seeing what was out there. And then after I finished uh, that program, Judith Shine at Cal Poly Pomona called me because she had I had been recommended to her from a professor at Georgia Tech. So I took on a, a, a part-time teaching position at Cal Poly. When was that? I was in 2005. And then a tenure-track position opened up that summer, and I, I applied for that. There was actually three positions that were available, so I was fortunate to get one of them. They're not, they're not the easiest positions to get. I got lucky that there was... A position opened up right around the time that I was trying to figure out my own practice and trying to avoid going back into working for a larger architecture firm. I was I was doing a consulting work at Perkins and Will to make some extra money to survive. Yeah, because teaching one first year class is not enough. <laughs> that's not, not going to do it. So yeah, they hired me to do some programming for science facilities, which is what I had experience with. Oh, so wow, I was working that's so on the, weird. I know, it's something I don't really talk about that much, but yeah. I was working on the programming for the Cancer Research Center for Hope, oh. City of Hope. Oh, wow. I would have never known that that was your background. <laughs> yeah, it's not something I talk about that often. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a super sexy part of the field. It's a very technical, it's not like um, you can just jump in and say, I'm going to design a science facility. You have to really know your stuff. I mean, you do to like fit out the labs and to really know what's supposed to go where. But I was working at the kind of conceptual and master planning and programming phases Mm -hmm. of these projects primarily. They're very much about kind of 
solving a, a complex puzzle, but also about it's a sort of strategic plan. That's why I meant that it's a little bit similar to urbanism, because you have all of these these different interests and people who have different requirements, but you also have all of this infrastructural needs, like, you know, how do you get all of this HVAC systems through the building and right. how do they work and, and still give people views and how do you create a highly flexible environment uh, that's able to change over time because nobody really knows where science is going. So you have to create these environments that where you do basically scenario planning, where mm -hmm. you sort of look at at ways that over the next 20, 30 years, things that may happen in the future by working with um, with the scientists and and with the various you know facilities people to kind of figure out what's because you can't afford to to offer everything to somebody, but you have to be able to offer enough so that these things can adapt and change over time. And that means that you have to be really smart about where you locate systems and how those the buildings can take the unknowable things that are going to happen uh, in the future. And that's why, primarily why I got involved with CyArk and Michael Speaks, because they were doing all this stuff with strategic planning, where they would do game theories about for urban design to sort of, they were looking at these, um, I guess there were models that were set up by Shell in the 70s, which were uh, scenario planning, which is really a kind of formula that tells you this is how how you should uh, approach something that's not knowable and figure out possible futures by doing a kind of combinatory exercises by saying, you know, this thing might happen in the future and this other thing might happen. What happens if they both happen? What happens if neither one happens? And then you're also trying to map trends. And then that gives you a series of worlds that your building or your city might live in. And then that will allow you to kind of figure out what the minimum is that you have to provide in order to wow. allow these buildings to adapt. That's, or cities to adapt. That's super interesting. Yeah, it's still something I'm very interested in. That's actually when I was on sabbatical about five years ago. I was in Holland researching all of that. It had to do with the work that people are doing with game theory, mapping, urban, because the Dutch are certainly the masters of looking into the future. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. So is that something you think you bring into um, your new practice at Tolo or or are bringing into um, classes you're teaching at Cal Poly? I think it certainly affects the way I approach all designs, even really small designs, and the way that I approach studio projects that I set up, which is always to try to figure out ways that the students can either look into the past to see trends. So for example, in a single family house, mapping the location of the bathroom over time or the you know, the relationship of the kitchen to the dining room over sure. time and sort of seeing how either cultural factors change those relationships or or technology or mm -hmm. economics or the role of women right, right in a household and, and how those rooms have constantly 
change their scale, their location, their orientation, and how by being able to map the relationship between culture and space, you can get insights into what that might look like in the future, especially because we never design for the present, right? Every project is being designed for the future, whether it's the near future, right, in the next two, three years, or whether it's a really large project that's going to be living 10, 20, 50, 100 years into the future, depending on the scale. No building is only for the present. So I think it's important at least to try to imagine what the future might look like and how the way people use a building right. might you know, what needs they might have or how how you might be able to accommodate that change. Right. And that kind of depends, too, on the client probably and how disposable they see the architecture as being. Right. But even a disposable, I mean, even things that we consider kind of short term, yeah. like a warehouse or something, mm-hmm. you're still talking about a 20-year lifespan. There's a lot that happens over 20 oh, years. Sure. It's, I mean, if you take the transformation of the last... If, in our lifetime, the last 20 years, the way that everything's changed from mechanizations to, you know, artificial intelligence. And it's interesting because I wouldn't consider myself somebody who's sort of in that, in the camp of sci-fi architecture, which is certainly, there's a lot of people who are interested in, right, who are kind of futurist and right. interested in, the, I don't know, I would say the sexy side of robots and making that either a kind of post-apocalyptic, you know, aesthetic that speaks to the future or people who are very into new tools like mm-hmm. machines to make things. I'm interested in the in kind of understanding the future on a much more, on the one hand, maybe more pragmatic level and also culturally. Yeah. Through your career, I mean, and it's not, you're still young. <laughs> Have you seen a lot of changes in architecture? I've seen a lot of changes in in the things that motivate architecture. Maybe not the science of building hasn't changed dramatically, but the the motivations for architecture have changed quite a lot in the last 20 years. I mean, certainly stylistically, the things that are important to people materially, but even also what kinds of projects get built where people want to invest their money changes fairly rapidly i think you know you look at the history of museums right which is a fairly new building type relatively you know 200 year old building type and how that building type has evolved how much it's changed but also how much more a part of our day-to-day life and how much more money is invested into it. It sort of tells you something about where people are putting their money and where their values are. And, you know, in terms of office space, you'd see the kind of where people want to work. That's mm-hmm. changed dramatically. So that changes how you can build, uh, where people want to live. Yeah. I mean, that's even in you know the 10 years or how long have I been in L.A. now? 15 years I've been in L.A., it's changed pretty dramatically. What drew you, besides Michael Speaks, what drew you to actually stay in L.A.? I actually liked L.A. as soon as I got here. I don't know. It's a city 
that's very familiar. I grew up in Mexico City, and L.A. is in some ways very similar. It felt very familiar to me when I moved here. And I lived in the Northeast. I went to college in the Northeast and mm-hmm. the Southeast. We lived in San Francisco before we moved here. Of all those places I've lived in, the only place that felt really comfortable and interesting and I felt like I fit in here mm-hmm. almost immediately was L.A. Um, well, I heard when you were at Smith that uh, Gloria Steinem was there. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny that you, you, you're asking that. She wasn't there teaching, but she's an alum of mm-hmm. Smith College. And Smith used to do these things where they do this thing called Rally Day every year, which is, like, I think, a really great tradition where they would, it was a kind of feminist uprising day where they would cancel all classes and you would attend an all-day like conference for the entire school and they would invite speakers which in you know at that time was like Gloria Steinem, Molly Yard, I don't know a lot of different people and and this was in the kind of late 80s so there was a kind of as there is seems like constantly there was this this threat to Roe v. Wade so that was a big part of There was a real rallying cry to do something. And there was all these take back the night marches, which were about giving women the authority or the comfort to be out at night and to sort of have solidarity with other women. I don't know if Gloria Steinem had a particular influence on me, but certainly those kinds of rallying cries that were really about agitating us to be a little bit more political and to kind of understand that you couldn't be complacent about your place in the world, but you actually had to go out and claim a fairer position in society. Right. Not to just accept what maybe other people were expecting for you. Right. Yeah, that's cool. The reason I'm asking is because I think that you've been such a strong proponent for women in architecture. I don't know if you identify yourself that way, but I certainly feel that way because I was your student and then, you know, taught at Cal Poly while you were chair. And I feel that I've seen a lot of change while you were chair. For example, I was recently in a review where a male professor sitting on the same panel uh, listened to my comment and then started off with, I agree with everything Audrey just said, and then kept going. And I thought, wow, you know, that's something that we as women have definitely been trying to push in there um, just to help each other in sort of these circumstances where we're not necessarily always heard um, and just trying to reinforce each other's strength. And so I thought, you know, I wonder, I bet that's Sarah's influence. I don't know if it's mine or somebody who's been to reviews and seen this kind of amplification going on and being aware of the fact that men often, if they're they're in the majority, have a tendency to speak over women and sometimes ignore comments that were being made, which I've certainly seen. I mean, in terms of advocating for women, yeah, I feel very strongly about that. I've always been, I do think it started at Smith. I mean, it's hard to graduate from probably the most feminist school in the country and not be influenced by that. And then actually when I went to art school afterwards, because I was in art school and I was studying drawing, I became very radicalized. I I've mellowed out. I was very <laughs> obnoxious about it, sort of 
claiming that the only audience that mattered to me was other women in the artwork. And I had this whole very obnoxious argument that would light people's hair on fire. <laughs> and I think that was the intention when I was, I mean, I was, you know, yeah. 20 years old, and the goal was to make people bristle when you were presenting your work. But I, yeah, I think it's very important. I think it's important to help other women. I think it's important to help your peers and certainly younger women. And I don't know, maybe also my mother was a, a real trailblazer and she had practice in an office where she was the only woman at her level worldwide. She was very vocal about the fact that, you know, you have to be very aggressive and even in this whatever third wave feminism, you know, where maybe things are have opened up a little bit, I do think it's important to try to be vocal and try to find ways to help other women. You know, I, I don't hide the fact that that's my agenda. I don't think there's anything wrong with having that as an agenda. No, I don't either. From my personal experience, for example, I teach first year and I went from being the only female instructor out of, I don't know how many, five, to last year having been one of four female instructors um, out of seven. And that, to me, looking around was pretty just remarkable, seeing that the faculty actually was reflecting the students that they were teaching in the ratio and um, diversity and all of that, that we actually looked a bit more like what the student population looked like. Yeah, I mean, I th that's exactly the, the point. Not only that, but I think it makes education better. I mean, if you the more diverse voices you have, the more that I think that there's an interesting conversation and there's, that's the whole point is, in, in education is to get various perspectives and mm -hmm. to kind of, and also I think you need people that are going to motivate you to stay in the profession. So it helps to see leadership right. that's, similar. I agree. Yeah, I mean, when I was in grad school, I didn't have a single female instructor except for one art history teacher. I think in all of the years I was in grad school. Uh-huh. At Sciarc and at Georgia Tech. And as an undergraduate at Smith, there was women faculty members, but I can't really think of too many women. And certainly all my bosses have been men mm -hmm. um, in, in practice. Actually, that's not true. When I first started as an intern, I worked for an all-woman-owned uh, firm in Atlanta, which has done extremely well, a firm called Stanley Beeman and Sears. They were, they were great, these two women and, and one guy. But in general, it's not very common. It's becoming more common. Yeah, definitely. Besides advocating for more females being hired, are there other things that you're particularly proud of achieving while you were chair of the department? Um, I think Cal Poly always had amazing students, probably some of the best students in the country, just because it's so incredibly competitive to get into the school, and it has a very interesting mix of students. And I think the, the, the faculty are really great, too. There was a few things that needed to maybe get restructured, so... It wasn't that we changed faculty, although we did hire a lot of new adjunct faculty and certainly a lot of women mm -hmm. in the adjunct positions that were there. 
uh, some of the things that we were doing were really kind of moving people around. So one of the things that I was happy to do is to really take a, a look at each year and try to find what the main goal of that year was and mm-hmm. to to place faculty in each year that had a kind of similar outlook and that worked well together and that had a collaborative spirit within each year. And just by moving people around, it actually made an enormous difference in the work that was coming out of it. Because, you know, there's two things about about a kind of diversity of opinions. Like you want diversity of opinions over the whole program and you want people to be exposed to different ideas. But in a particular studio, you also want to have kind of synergy between people that that the conversation that they're having, that they're all on the same, that all the faculty are on the same page and they're giving similar messages to the students and that they're, you know, in kind of competition in some ways with each other, but that they all have a similar interest in a particular area of architecture. So mm-hmm. first year tends to be much more about making, like the kind of interest in understanding ideas, but also in the kind of making of objects and the making of drawings. And second year tended to be a little bit more about form. And then third year is a little bit more technical, and you also need people that have experience building. For me, like those the three first years of a five-year undergraduate program are really the most important, or the first two years of an MRC one program. The fourth and fifth year and the third year of the grad program can be very, very, there's certainly a lot more room for experimentation and for like errors. So you need really strong faculty in those core studios. I want to go back, though, to talking about um, the position as chair. And I am sure it's really difficult. And now that you're able to look at it a little bit in the rearview mirror, um, what skills do you think you needed for that position? The things that you hear often and about any kind of management, which is you need to have consensus, get <laughs> consensus from everybody. And it's even more so in academia because they're very flat institutions. So as chair, you're not anybody's boss. You're just another faculty member. So there is really very little hierarchy between being chair you're, you have more responsibilities towards the organization of the institution, but you can't tell people how to teach or what to teach. Or, mm-hmm. And the other faculty members are your peers, so you have to get everybody on board towards a common goal, but you can't strong-arm them into having that common goal. <laughs> so you have to find ways to get people to agree. And it's funny, we were talking, I, I didn't actually really think that this was that this is where this was going to go a kind of support for scenario planning but it's actually very similar to what you do in <laughs> scenario planning which is that you have to break down the problem into smaller pieces so for example Capella Pomona is going from quarters to semesters as right. you know and we started planning for that you know 4 years ago so we knew it was coming and in order to get everybody because it's very complicated you had this moment where everything could change or some things could change or you could not right. change anything and just sort of try to make quarter classes work on semesters. 
But more than likely, there was going to be some degree of things that stayed the same and some things that changed. But you also had to get everybody agree as to what that would be. And that was hard. That is a major transformation. It's not like shuffling people around from teaching positions. You actually have to figure out what the program's going to look like and all of the possible ramifications of what that thing four years down the line is going to look like. And you got to get everybody to agree. So that was a challenge. It worked out by doing basically what we did in scenario planning, which is to break (laughs) down all of these decisions into small bite-sized pieces. There's actually a group called Crimson in the Netherlands who designed, who did all this urban master planning this way uh, in this town called Hoeveleek. I can't pronounce it. I'm terrible <laughs> Dutch. But and basically what they did is that in order to get the city to be able to make decisions, they would not give them a master, a completed master plan. They would just say, okay, do you want many small parks or one big park? And every decision was a separate set of yeah. decisions. So, so they went through this master planning process by breaking down all of the decisions into these very bite-sized and easy answerable, yeah. right? Because they all just required yes or no answers. Right. And they got this town to make these fairly radical transformation in a way that didn't cause a lot of friction by making it the decisions sort of seem, you know, less enormous. I basically took the research I had done, the <laughs> same thing, and turned everything into bite-sized decisions <laughs> and everything built on the next. So the only thing I had everybody agree to at the beginning was that we could not go back on any decision that we had voted on the week before. So okay. that was the only rule. So we'd say, okay, should... All the courses be three-unit courses, or should we have a variation of three- and four-unit courses? And there's pluses and minuses, right? Because some people would say, yeah, but this class is more important than this one. But we all agreed that all of the courses would be the same, and that was already a decision. So once you make that decision, then you made another decision that would say, you know, I don't know. There was endless numbers of these, and we could sort of discuss the pros and cons of each one without tackling the whole problem. And so over a year, we actually built the whole curriculum fairly painlessly. Like there wasn't a lot of arguing or mostly we managed to get all the things that we do now well, they're all going to get transferred over. And the few areas where we saw that there was some problems, we tackled those and changed those. So I would say the program is going to be about 80% the same and 20% changed. That's also manageable Mm -hmm. because there are always people, the kind of revolutionaries in the bunch who want to throw out everything and start over. That's (laughs) it's very hard to evaluate what. (laughs) First of all, it's hard to do, but it's also hard to kind of evaluate successes if you've changed everything. Right? You have to sort of figure out. You have to change a few variables, (laughs) not every variable. So I think in the work I've done from. From grad school on over the last 20 years, a lot of it has been this kind of strategic thinking. <laughs> so that has served me very well in, in as chair. That sounds like a really smart way to handle that issue. Because if you get a room full of really smart, design-oriented, problem-solving people, 
they're all going to have their own opinions. And so you kind of minimize the chance of that happening while making everyone feel really involved and important and like they're and giving them choices, but on a level where you could still move forward in small steps to, towards the goal together rather than clobbering each other from the get-go. Right, because if you try to tackle the whole thing at once, it would be a big problem. <laughs> and actually teaching studios the same way. I mean, that's the way I like to teach where you say, okay, we're only going to deal with this issue, and then we're going to deal with this issue, and then we're going to deal with this issue. And then you're you're going to try to resolve each one of the issues that you already made decisions on. And I try to hold people's feet to the fire and say, you can't go back. And that allows people to move forward, especially when you're, I mean, currently we're on quarters and in 10 yeah. weeks you have to design a building. You don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of room to start over, and it's not helpful to start over. And then if it if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and you next quarter you try something else. And it probably teaches people to deal with more real world type conditions where there's fixed parameters. There was one event that you threw while you were chair. It was a symposium on women in academia. Right. That was actually Heather Harris from England. She was here and she wanted to do it. And I said, yes, absolutely. I would contribute. And Kimberly Meyer from, used to be from the MAC, now from CSU Long Beach uh, Museum. We did it together. It was a kind of underground conference because it wasn't actually <laughs> even public. It was sort of part of the... Oh. But Can I it, talk about no, it? No, absolutely. It's we like were all very... Club. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's not like Fight Club. <laughs> But it was just something that was like, okay, here's all the women that we know. Let's all get together and have a series of speakers from different backgrounds who are women teaching in academia, sort of at the beginning, middle, and more established mm -hmm. women, you know, like Dana Cuff and Heather Robert, who are more established and then more younger women. That was fun. Yeah. Were there any takeaways that stayed with you from that? I think you brought it up before. One of them was this sort of ways of amplifying people's voices and really supporting women who were coming mm -hmm. up and who are interested like you were teaching and sort of how you find ways to support them in either by attending their events or broadcasting their accomplishments or, you know, really sort of finding ways to make women more visible. I would say that that's the thing that I noticed I took away from it. And then people talking about, you know, that obviously women are as, as varied as... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's as many different opinions as there are from men. Right. So there's no reason that we should all have a similar outlook and to be, you know, to kind of allow for that difference. And Yeah, I mean, I think there are women also, most recently um, someone made a comment that she doesn't want to be referred to as a woman Architect. She just yeah, wants. I don't really like when people say that. I mean, I understand what they're saying, that I want to be sort of known as an architect. You know, like I have friends who are artists and they say, I don't want to know, be known as a French artist. I'm an artist. I don't know. I, I think people should embrace being a woman architect and that's fine. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're less of an architect. It's just, it's not like it's a qualifier, like I'm a good architect, I'm a bad architect. Right, right. <laughs> but it is part of who you are and that's, makes it kind of interesting that you say, of course you're a woman architect. You're right. a woman and an architect. 
It's a kind of a strange thing to say. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's strange to say that I want to be known. Somebody to say I want to be known as an architect, but not a woman architect. That statement in itself sort of makes it sound like there's something kind of lesser with being a, a woman architect, that the qualifier is is somehow diminishing their their achievements. It's almost like like silver medal. Like women architect <laughs> is the silver, but architect <laughs> is the gold. I'm like, what, what is that all about? <laughs> I don't really get that. Yeah. I mean, I get the point that men aren't, who are architects aren't referred to as the man architect. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I don't know, no. but they probably will be at some point. I mean, you mm-hmm. were saying he's a male architect, she's a female architect. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I I think people eventually will probably qualify that and say, just because people are interested. I mean, gender is a part of who we are, you know, however you want to express that. That's why we're having all of these identity issues and people want to be kind of recognized for their various, you know, transgendered rights. All of these things have to do with the fact that we do want to be recognized for whatever way that we see ourselves and the importance of gender in that. Um, well, I, I admire that, you know, now that you're done being chair, you didn't let yourself relax into just being a tenured professor. You <laughs> decided to, you know, become director with AILA, but also now partner at uh, Tolo with Peter Tolkien um, in your, your architecture practice. I, what made you decide to do that? Well, actually, that it's a little bit more the other way, wasn't that I... I kind of stepped down this chair and then I decided to join the practice. I started working with Peter about two years ago. <laughs> so while you were chair. <laughs> Towards the end of being chair when I, and I knew I wanted to get back into practice, uh-huh. but I also wanted to test it because it had been a while since I'd been in practice. So we started working together to see how it would work, you know, whether we could get, a, I mean, we're friends, but we'd never worked together. So. Right to see if we worked well together, and we did. And so we, I did that kind of quietly without really telling anybody that we were working together for the first six months. And then that was part of the reason I decided not to run a second term was that I really wanted to get back into practice. And um, I mean, I loved being chair, and I liked, you know, I liked running the school, and it was very satisfying, and certainly it was... I don't know. I really believe in the school, and I feel feels great to be improving. You know, to be doing things for a place that you really believe in. But I, I don't know. I just I wanted to have a voice that was more than just maybe amplifying other people's voices, but to have my own voice. Yeah, sure. So I've spent a long time kind of pushing other people's careers and pushing students and right. pushing. Uh, you know, finding opportunities for people to either by hiring them or by advocating for them to get grants or things, or even here at VDL, right. working with artists to show their work. And so a lot of my my work in the last 10 years has really been kind of a producer role. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to do something where I would have maybe more of a personal voice in it. Or a collaborative voice. I mean, obviously, it's not me. It's me and the office and, and you know, largely, you know, it's Peter. He's got the firm. It's It was established. So it's uh, now it's a, a collaboration. 
I'm really excited. It's always fun also to do something new and to build something is really exciting. That's cool. Do you have um, or do you foresee any way that your voice is going to change the practice that's known now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, the great thing about working with Peter is that he's incredibly collaborative and he's very um, generous about kind of sharing all of the aspects of the office. So it's like, it's not like one of us is doing one thing, one of us doing the other. We're both doing the marketing, we're both doing the going out and getting clients, and we're certainly both discussing design and having a design input. So I'm sure it'll change just because whenever you have, right. you know, my, my sensibilities, I really respect the work that he does, but my sensibilities are obviously going to be somewhat different. So right. the work is going to probably adapt. Hopefully it doesn't get worse. For <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the work stays. I mean, the work coming out of the office right now, the last projects are really, really great. I And I can say that because I didn't have anything to do with them, but the work is really stunning. I think we'll get a lot of press because they're really pretty amazing. What are they? So one is a house in Montecito, which is just stunningly beautiful. It's uh, all copper clad. It's basically these pavilions placed inside this oak grove, and they're able to get close to the trees by lifting the buildings up so they're elevated about a foot off the ground. The owner is an art collector, so then there's a gallery spine that kind of weaves and joins all these little disparate pavilions together, and then everything is clad in copper. And then all of the interior, like all of the wet spaces, kitchens, bathrooms, are completely covered in heath tile. Oh, beautiful. And they all have skylights, so they all have a kind of a view into the oak grove and then up in the sky. It's pretty spectacular. It sounds like it. It's very nice. And then... Yeah, they're working on a working on an office medical office building in South Pasadena and some other interesting projects. Cool, just fun. Yeah, that sounds like a great new direction for you. Um, you know, I didn't touch on at all your role with VDL House. <laughs> you have so many different too many hats. <laughs> at some point, I should probably eliminate. One hat. I seem to eliminate one hat, and then I tend to pick up another one instead of just get it going to like two jobs. Like I have this thing about having yeah. three jobs at all times. It's not a very good idea. <laughs> How do you find the time for that? I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, I still have a very. It's not like I'm a crazy workaholic like people that work, you know, all hours of the night. I'm really not. I work fairly methodically like I work every day but I don't work late into the night or anything like that I do work every weekend and okay yeah so that's how (laughs) that's how I don't think I've had it yeah I work every Saturday Sunday Monday Tuesday Wednesday (laughs) Thursday Friday does it feel like work no because it's you're always doing something different anyway and it's like you're changing so it's a little bit crazy that you're like, it's basically, you know, three days I do schoolwork. You know, one day is dedicated to VDL. And then the other three days I do the practice. Wow. So that's seven days right there. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it works out. Wow. But I really like what I'm doing. I mean, I don't have kids. That would not be possible. It doesn't really feel like work. And it's very different to be teaching than it is to be writing something or working on paperwork. or They're all very different kinds of tasks. So I think it's much more tiring if you're doing exactly the same thing every day, then you probably do need a break. But if you're doing very different things every day, it's not so tiring. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How did becoming the director of the VDL house come about? That I just applied for like 10 years ago. Actually, that was my husband, who David, who was very insistent he's, that when the opportunity came up, he's like, that sounds like a great thing for us to do. <laughs> and actually, that's the only reason I can do it is because David does, even though he's, he never gets any recognition yeah. for all the work he does here, but he does enormous amounts of work here. And it's really, that's the only way we can manage this place is that mm -hmm. the two of us are working on it. Do you both have art backgrounds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we both have backgrounds in art. His background is in more graphic design. He does now all digital work for TV, but similar background. And is that how the sort of artist in residence program came about? The artist in residence program at VDL came about kind of by accident. There was a Mexican artist named Santiago Borja who came to visit me in 2009. And he asked if he could do an exhibition, an installation on the roof of the house. And I was very skeptical and I wasn't sure who he was. And I said, okay, fine, come over and talk. And then I was so taken by him and the work that I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. Sounds great. And he had a grant from the Humix Foundation and has been doing a lot of these projects. And I had been following Kimberly Meyer's work at the Mac Center for a long time. So... It wasn't like it was unprecedented to do these kinds of projects in these houses. And sure. that was really the model. We never have sought out projects. They've always kind of arrived. We have no call or there. It's all word of mouth and it's all based on relationships because it's not an exhibition space. It's really, it's a house that's really a kind of an architectural education space. And then there are artists or architects who work as artists who are very taken by the idea of doing something here, and then we sort of figure it out through discussions. Typically, I don't work as the curator. I just help the projects and sort of figure out whether they are compatible with the house and then figure out how to get them built you know, with the artist. But they usually come with a curator, and there's somebody else dealing with funding and organization of all of that. That's still really interesting. I don't recall any other art projects going on with the house prior to that? No, when we got here, there hadn't been anything. There wasn't even tours of the house. There were like oh. sporadic. So I set up the regular tours, uh -huh. set up all the fundraising, all of that organizing, work. yeah, and all the restoration work. There was always a faculty member here, but their obligations were really just to kind of keep an eye on the house and do occasional tours by appointment. For me, I thought it was important to have a regular tours so we, you know, once a week and to involve students in that. It actually generates lots of money for the house, too. So, I mean, before that, the house was financially really strapped. Right. So now we're pretty refined. We're, we have lots of savings and we have wow. inc income and 
That's great. Yeah, it's very stable now. <laughs> that's incredible. So that's good. That's it. And I would say we're about 70% done with the restoration. Right. We still have a lot of interior things to do. and But the kind of... But it the really, leak. yeah, the water issues are solved. Right now, it's just a lot of cosmetic things that still need to be fixed. You know, endless punch list of items that need to. But we do stuff all the time. Yesterday, I spent four hours gardening and redid the courtyard gardens <laughs> and planted all these things oh, over yeah, there. That's and great. yeah, so that was very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a real accomplishment this weekend. It's like I got all the plants moved and planted. <laughs> I was out there till like planting in the dark. That was a little <laughs> bit crazy till like 10 at night. But that's fun. <laughs> well, um, thanks for doing everything you've been doing. Thank you for interviewing and to, for being so nice about these questions. And that's our show. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Sarah Lorenzen. To find out more about our show and links to Sarah's various endeavors, visit our website at xx-la.com. You can also follow us on social media at XXLA Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or write a review. I hope to see you all at the Women's March.